Hello, Space Bees. I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. This week we're doing something a little different because books are long and hard to read when you're drowning in work. So instead of reading a book, we took some topic suggestions from some space bees on Twitter and we'll dig into those. And then we'll discuss Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat, Volume 1, Hooked on a Feline. And then finally, we will talk about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And it will potentially be one of the most epic disagreements you ever hear me and Anna have. I can't. I'm not ready for this. Well, I wasn't prepared for you to, like, drag Ghostbusters 2 either. (laughs) Oh my god. He's gonna come back and bite me in the ass. I knew it. I knew knew that moment would come. So we can get to it faster. Let's get started. Because we're both behind... On our podcast reading, we decided to poll Twitter for some discussion topics. We got two that we really wanted to dig into. The first was from Jocelyn Zombie on Twitter, who wanted us to talk more about formative fiction in Brazil. Uh, Anna, I can't talk about formative fiction in Brazil because I didn't know Brazil existed in, in like when I first started reading. <laughs> so you can start and I'll add in my plebeian U.S. fiction stuff <laughs> afterwards. Right. The way that I understand this question is for me to talk about my formative fiction, right? What made me get into reading in the first place? When I was growing up in Brazil, we didn't have a lot of speculative fiction, not in the way that we know it now, not not in the way that it has spread so much into Brazil now. It's much more available. Actually, scrap that. It's everywhere fantasy and science fiction. There was no such thing when I was growing up. I would say that my formative fiction years, it started with my grandfather reading children's books to me. And I used to beg him to read me stories every single day. Then I moved on to read on my own. And I was very much into literary fiction and the classics of Brazilian literature. Really, really difficult stuff to read too. I remember when I was 12, there is a book called Clarissa. It's known to be a very difficult book to read. And I remember how proud I was for reading it. It it was shit, but it's one of those (laughs) things that you had to do. (laughs) I know. And I was very much into reading Encyclopedia. My aunt gave me an encyclopedia collection when I was 12 as well. 12 is a very specific year for me because I've got the encyclopedia. That's when also I started reading my mother's Agatha Christie collection. That was when I started reading adult fiction. So I went from children's literature to highbrow literature fiction at the same time that I was reading Agatha Christie. So you can see that there was no fantasy or science fiction there. But that I got out of reading the encyclopedia entries for Greek mythology. I used to go through all of those 
just looking for the Greek mythology ones. And then I started buying books about Greek mythology and about North mythology, about Celtic mythology, because I was so fascinated by all of that. And I guess that's where I got my fantasy and science fiction kick. I remember the first time I read a book of fantasy, the fantasy that as we know it right now. I went to a friend of a friend's house and I went into his bedroom and behind his door, there was a poster, a poster for a movie that I hadn't heard of that as far as I know, it was never available in Brazil. So I don't know how he got to see it or how he got the poster, but it was for the 70s version of the Lord of the Rings. And the poster is beautiful because it's an illustration. Um, the movie is actually a cartoon, right? That was way before they they made the movies. Peter Jackson made the movies, yeah. So I saw that poster and my mind went, oh my God, this is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. And then he says, well, that's based on a book called O Senhor dos Anéis. That's a literal translation of Lord of the Rings. And then I made it my mission to find that book in Brazil. And guys, you will not believe how hard that was. This is before the internet, so I couldn't do an internet search. We don't have libraries in Brazil like we do in the UK or in the US. You have libraries for research, but you don't get to take books out and bring them home. I I just couldn't find those books anywhere. It wasn't available anywhere. So at one point, someone said to me, oh, you should go to this publisher's office in the city center of Rio de Janeiro. And I went to the publisher because they had an office that they sold a few books there. And I begged them for a copy of Lord of the Rings. And they went and they, they got me a copy. And that copy didn't even have a cover. It was a black cover, just written, No Senhor dos Anéis. And that was it. And then I read it. And I was like, I want this. But there wasn't a lot more of it at that stage in Brazil. And I think the next big one, that was a point where it kicked off to bring and to get more people to translate or even to write more science fiction fantasy was Harry Potter. The first time I came traveling to the UK and I went to Waterstones and I saw that there was an actual just fantasy section, I just couldn't believe my eyes. That I think that was my formative fiction in Brazil. It's a, a mixture of everything, very hard get into fantasy and science fiction, which are my loves now, I guess. There was also one extra thing that I'm going to tell you. When I was a child, there was a TV show. And the only thing that I remember from that TV show, it was an Easter special. And I remember that there was a lion, that they cut the lion's mane, and then the lion broke a table, and then he came back to life. And then there were several statues And the statues came to life. And I remember loving this, loving this so much. And I remember, do you know how you go to parties and you are with a group of friends and you talk about your childhood and you you say, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Have you ever watched this? And then then you share those memories and then you find that you love the same things. And I used to talk about this TV show and no one ever, ever, ever remember it. So again, when I came to the UK for the first time and I was looking for things like Lord of the Rings, 
So I got C.S. Lewis, um, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe. And I was reading it at the hostel in London when I got to the part where Aslan dies. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. Guys, it took me 30 years to find this thing. 30 years. Oh my God. And I never knew what it was. As soon as you told me, oh, it's about this lion and you get shaved and the table breaks. Yeah. I would have, I would have yeah. known exactly what you meant. Yeah, exactly. Nobody knew. I didn't know. I've never of course, read the I books. Was, but... I was very, very young. I, I had no recollection of the name of anything. I thought it was an Easter special, right? Well, it was I mean, an Easter it's C.S. Lewis, so... Yeah, it... it was very, it's very... It has a very um, Christian background, of course, and Islam equals Jesus. But And I started crying at the hostel because finally, finally, I found a fucking thing. That's amazing. I know that now we are living in this time where you can just go and find stuff. You just search the internet for it. But... You were born before the internet was a thing. I was born before the internet was a thing. I didn't get the internet until I was 11. And then I didn't get it in like in a reliable way until I hit college in 2001. It's so different now. You, we can just go and look anything up. These days, you can even enter like really obscure, a really obscure description of something as well. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't even, even need to know a lot of details. Just a sliver of memory is enough for you to find things again. Things will never be forgotten. Your story is great. Mine is really boring. (laughs) So when I was a kid, I had a lot of trouble reading because nobody would read to me. I didn't get read to. That was not a thing that happened. What I did have were all these books on tape. Like I had Pound Puppies and I had Care Bear tapes and I had Little Red Hen and had all these little stories on these tapes cassette tapes and these little books so I could follow along in the book or the tape but I was having a really hard time learning to read and so I used the program called Hooked on Phonics I'm sure everybody's heard of that it's a cultural joke people who have never needed it go uh I need Hooked on Phonics I'm like shut up you you don't need it shut up I never heard of that before so I don't know you should google it it's some of the cartoons and little advertising it's just really anyway so i used that then i started first grade and in first grade like they had all these like hardcover collections of books with short stories in them for like little kids and so if you read a book you got and you could bring it back and get a star and stuff like you read a bunch of books you got a prize or something it was like the worst kind of game or kids it was like don't read for enjoyment read to a read to get something out of it like a physical object it was terrible even when i had trouble reading these things i would still like take them home and i would just sit there and spend hours struggling with them and i don't know at what point i got better but i think it was when i started reading the encyclopedia which is funny because we both read the encyclopedia and in one of the encyclopedias that i read there was an entry and it said king stephen all he did was write books i'm like that's a job you can have you can just write things and the job then I started like looking up like definitions of writers. I would ask teachers, I'd ask my parents, like, what's a writer? What is what do a writer do? Most of the answers I got back then were like, Oh, as a journalist, you'd be a journalist, you'd go work for a paper. So for a long time, a good ten years or so, I mean that's what I worked toward. I worked toward being a journalist. Like I was I gave up my dream of going to vet- veterinarian school when I realized I didn't have the math for it. I'm really dumb in math. I just can't handle being wrong as much as I'm wrong in math. Then I switched to journal- 
to journalism and I was just going to go to college and become a journalist. P.S. I'm really glad I didn't do that because the years leading up to me going to college was when the internet was starting to become a thing and you were watching these papers and the internet struggled to like coexist. So I was watching that happen kind of like in real time. And once I got to college and I was seeing, I was like, shit, this internet thing is going to be a thing. And are newspapers even going to be a thing? They are still RPS. They are still a thing. Not as much anymore, but they're still a thing. At least here. And I got out. I just was I panicked and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I don't want I don't know what I want to do anymore. I went back to the thing that I like to do, which was read books. And I'm just like, okay. When I grew up, I was reading Sweet Valley and Babysitter's Club and this really weird love story series that was romance. Because why it didn't exist. Uh, P.S. Everybody who loves YA, yes. Why it didn't exist back then. It, did, it didn't happen. It wasn't there. Like, the way we have YA now? No. Mm -mm. No, no, we didn't have it. It did not exist where I lived. So I was like, oh, well, I read all these books. Because that's what I read. I didn't read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. But I did read these like, slice of love stories. So I'm just like, I could write books, maybe. P.S. It's really hard to write books. <laughs> but that's kind of where I started with formative reading and where formative reading led me when they say to read to your kids they're not joking you need to read to your kids but that's really interesting though because for you it brought you immediately to a place where you wanted to be the writer yeah i've never wanted to be the writer you write a blog yeah i do maybe a small part of you wants to be a writer if it can make people read books <laughs> not a fiction definitely not a fiction writer man i've always wanted to write fiction I don't know how I ended up writing mostly nonfiction, mostly because I got terrified because fandom is terrifying right now. Because I mean, that's where I started writing fiction was in fandom. Now that fandom is terrifying, and I don't, I don't write anymore. Thanks a lot, fandom. Thumbs way up for being terrifying. So, Jocelyn, I don't know if that answered your question on my part, but uh, Anna's answer was great. Thank you for giving us a topic to discuss. The second topic was given to us by Garrick Winter on Twitter, and they wanted to know. Um, the role, world, slash setting plays in drawing you into a story because he gets very absorbed in worlds independent of characters. My immediate reaction to this was, I've never heard of this before. <laughs> That's totally, like, if we were on, like, a seat, like, if we were on, like, a plane, there'd be, like, huge amounts of space between us because that's totally not how I read, Anna, is it? <laughs> I had to think about this one a little bit. I would say that... I'm with you. I can't imagine being drawn to a story independent of characters. I mean, what is even that? I mean, you care about the world because of the characters that inhabit it, right? So Yes, not not ever the other way around. There's got to be an, an exception or two to this rule. I think the way that it works for me, though, is, is a world and the setting can like, attract me into a story. If I read a book that says zombies in space and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to read it because you don't know the characters beforehand. The only thing that you know about is the world. The world is what attracts me, especially with fantasy and science fiction. If it sounds interesting, oh, this is an AI story. This is time travel story. This is a time travel in Oxford historical thing. That's going to be attractive to me. But what makes the story stick are the characters. 
I'm looking at my shelves right now. I'm trying to find exceptions to this. Well, I'm also like the total opposite of somebody who would be like this. I'm really sorry, dude, on Twitter. Uh, I mean, I run fanfic, and fanfic isn't necessarily about the world, it's about the characters. Like, I come from that background. My way of engaging with stories is engaging with characters, not worlds. I mean, I can do world building in worlds where the characters exist, but I'm mostly doing the world building there and being sunk into those universes because of the characters, because I don't want to write those characters. And to write those characters, I have to write inside their worlds. So that's how I get absorbed. But I don't get absorbed because of the world itself. Although it sometimes can be a plus. Oh, yeah. But not without characters. I need the characters. I feel like I'd be disappointed. <laughs> Garrick Winter with our answer. I'm so sorry, Garrick Winter, that we're we need character. We just we need it. I'm sure we'll think of exceptions immediately after we finish this uh, segment. Uh, definitely, we can go back to it at some point. Yes, if we remember, it's I'll, a promise. I'll continue thinking about it, and if I find an exception, I'm gonna mention it. Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat Volume 1, hooked on a feline by Kate Leth, Brittany Williams, Natasha Allegri, Megan Wilson, and Clayton Cowles, is a story of Patsy Walker and her adventures in New York City. I have never read Kate Leth before, so when I went into this comic, I was expecting, you know, I don't know, like what I get from other superhero comics. What I did not expect was to get, like, a Squirrel Girl-esque comedy adventure special it was amazing it was exactly like that i re- it reminded me so much of squirrel girl in like so the much. best way the best way and it was its own thing like it didn't it doesn't like take the tone of squirrel girl it's got its own tone but it's funny and colorful and creative and i loved it i loved it so much i wish i had read it sooner i thought maybe it was too cute for me uh-oh <laughs> I don't know what it was. Maybe I read in the wrong time of the month. Maybe it reminded me too much of Squirrel Girl. Maybe it reminded me too much of Lumberjanes. I didn't get a Lumberjanes vibe at all. I did. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But I didn't fall in love with it. I'm so sorry you didn't fall in love with it. Because I definitely fell in love with it. It was super, super great. I mean, there are really great things about it. It's everything that I like, right? So it has comedy, it has lightness, it's about good people, it's very diverse. One of the main characters is gay and possibly... Oh, it's bi, right? He says he's yes. bi. He also gives me some gender fluidity vibes too sometimes. And the friendships are really great too. She uh, pets his really great friends with uh, Jessica, the She-Hulk. Jennifer Walters. Jennifer. So, yes, in theory, it has all the elements that I love. I don't know what happened. I think you read it in the wrong mood. That's what I'm going to blame. Okay, that's, I'm, I'm going to go with that, too. What did you think of the art, though? Maybe, maybe that's part of it. It just... Does it remind you of manga? Well, the first few issues, no. The last issue is just like One Piece. And I didn't. I wasn't like super crazy about that art style. I was very confused about what was going on. There's a couple different things happening in the comic. Patsy is between jobs. She keeps getting. She keeps losing her job, and 
She's also dealing with the fact that her former best friend has taken the rights to like a comic that was drawn and written by her mother and republished them. And the comic is based on Patsy and her friends when they were kids, and it's super embarrassing, and Patsy is not a big fan of this because now she's being recognized all over the place. Like, are you Patsy? She's not crazy about it. I was not expecting it to be like this because the reason that I learned about this character was from Jessica Jones, the Marvel show. Because obviously in Jessica Jones, you have Trish. And when she was a kid, she played this character, Patsy Walker. And her mom like ran her career, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe I was expecting something a little darker, but it's not dark at all, which this is why you should not trust the MCU. That's a really good point, because that's not what I was expecting either, possibly because of Jessica Jones. So if you watch <laughs> Jessica Jones and then go into this comic, it's like really it's gonna be it's like gonna be a really huge tonal shift. So I think if you expect anything like any similarities other than the service ones like names and sort of the concepts uh you're going to be shocked because <laughs> this is definitely like what i would think of as super happy uplifting superhero comic which is what i want out of my superhero comics after reading months of terrible tony stark slash civil war comics that's true it's very uplifting the other thing that she deals with as well is i think she died yeah right? she was brought back to life and i don't think she has all of her memories because she doesn't remember jessica jones she hasn't really dealt with it like the comic itself has not it's kind of like a thing that's being pulled out into the next i think so yeah so i think we're going to see that in, in the next volume this volume was mostly about establishing patsy and her social group which i just really love her social group they are super great they are absolutely great i loved all of her friends and I love the fact that she just kept like forcibly making friends. And this is this is what reminded me of Squirrel Girl too, because Squirrel Girl used to to solve problems by you know having conversations with people, and that's kind of like the Hellcat's way too. I don't remember what issue it is, but in one of the issues, like she actually calls an emergency meeting with all the like she has Monica Rambeau and Jennifer Walters, America Chavez, Kate Bishop. Doreen Green and Tippy Toe. I know. So it was just like <laughs> these delightful cameos that were there. And I was like, ah, see, look, it's super easy to pass the Bechdel Wallace test in a comic. There are so many awesome women. Maybe one of the things that put me off a little bit is that the art made them seem childish or very young. I don't know. It's hard because you have to, you have to, when you switch from comic to comic, especially characters who cross over, you kind of have to just let it go because different artists interpret characters differently within the limits of their art style. And if they choose a specific art style for a comic and then they have a crossover character, they have to fold that character into their universe. And I think this probably is easier for me because I'm... You know, you know, fanfic. I read fanfic. I read fanfic. It's really normal to see that happen. But I mm-hmm. think for you, it might be a more of a struggle because Could you have be. to reimagine the character in a way. That's that's interesting. That's an interesting point. Well, Could art be. art in comics is really important. It's it's like a good ch- like I would think it would be more than half of how you interpret a character, which is why it's really hard 
for me when I read comics if the art changes issue to issue because then I feel like I don't get a good grip on the character. Right, yeah. And I think that's maybe what you're struggling with. How about that uh, part where she goes to see Doctor Strange? Okay, that was great. Listen. (laughs) I mean, there are such great things about it. Like I said, in theory, it's everything that I like. But you just didn't fall in love with it. No, I, I can't. I can't explain why. There are like a lot of running gags, like Jennifer getting liquid tossed onto her, and all the little times where Patsy like becomes a cat. All the little puns too. All the all the cat puns, definitely. I don't know how <laughs> you resisted it with all the cat puns. <laughs> and there are lots of asides as well from the writer, right? Uh-huh, like yeah. there is one pun. There was the cats. Let's get the cat back in the bag, or something like this. Yeah. And, it's, and, and 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 then he's, she says, "Well, I've been trying to get this into this uh, into the comic for four issues now." <laughs> so yeah, I really liked this comic. It was super cute. Like I really think that if you're looking for an uh, uplifting, super fun, funny superhero comic, um, this is one you should check out. I like the art. Like the for me, the art works. I mean, obviously, if you're used to characters from other comics, you're going to have to adjust a little. But I really think Brittany Williams uses the art and Megan Wilson gives it this super vibrant color that's just cheerful. Do you know when I realized that the art didn't do it for me? When you get to the end and you saw the variant art cover and I thought all of them looked so much better and I would have given money to see the whole trade with those. My favorite variant art, I think, was by Kevin Wada. I love that. But I also like the one by Erica Henderson. Yeah, but Erica Henderson can't draw everything. Yeah, no. She's too busy. And I don't know. I think you should try the second volume and see how I, it goes. I will. I'll definitely. Will. I mean, like I said, I really enjoyed it. See if the art grows on you at all. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it is uplifting. It's everything that we like about fiction you were just in a bad mood maybe how many space bees are you giving this three and a half three and a half you're gonna have a space bee we haven't we had a discussion <laughs> so then three yes, i'm giving it four i'm giving it four space bees okay we're gonna have to agree to disagree yes <laughs> and i think this comic that i loved <laughs> well i think that's good that we disagree uh... sometimes Well, no, it's good training for our next segment. Oh, God. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a 1986 movie by director John Hughes. Anna, Anna, you wanted us to watch this movie. Yes, I did. I paid for this experience. Wow. Actual dollars. I paid for it. Was this the first time you watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off? No, I've seen it once before, and I hated it. Oh my god. I don't know how it can go on. First, give me some backstory. I was a child, 11 years old. When I first watched this movie on my television, dubbed, and I completely fell in love with it. 
so much with everything about it, but most of all with the music, with the songs that he sang when he takes the floaty. I was too young to see the white privilege. I was too young to see the whiny white dude. I was far too young to see all of that. But I fell in love with the songs. I fell in love with the adventure and with the fun. I used to rent that movie all the time when I finally got my VCR in 1987. After that, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was on my VCR all the time. And I used to just play the songs over and over and over again. And that was the first time ever that I learned that there was such a thing as the Beatles. I had no idea what they were. And then I watched the movie. He sung Twist and Shout. At the end credit, I saw that they were by the Beatles. And then I started asking people, who are the fucking Beatles? What is this? And then I found out and I, and I went and I bought a cassette of one of their albums, the one that had Twist and Shout. And that's when I fell in love with the Beatles. Right after I fell in love with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I watched multiple times. And then I think I probably watched it a couple of times since, but not in a long, long time until now. And I actually think it stands the test of time. Oh boy, no, not at there, all. There are difficult things about it. No, it all fails. <laughs> but I really, really like that movie. I really, really do. I still find Ferris Bueller charming. I still find the whole thing charming. Even though I appreciate the fact that you have this guy just being unbearably smug and whiny because he doesn't have a car, even though he has a lot of stuff. And the principal was completely inappropriate. But there are so many classic things in there. You have the fourth wall breaking with Ferris Bueller talking to you. That was the first time ever that I've seen this in a movie. When I was 15... I moved to high school. That's when I started high school. And I hated it so much because I used to love the primary school that I was from five until I was 14. And I had, it was all the same friends and none of them went to my high school with me. So I was by myself and I hated it. And I just started pretending to, to be sick. And I used to do what Ferris Billy does. Lick the palms of your hands to say that I was sick, that I had stomachache. Do you know how much fecal matter is on your hands, Anna? Oh my God, Renee! Why? You're welcome. Bringing it down. So I want to talk about what I think this movie did right, which was the critique of the drudgery of public education in the U.S. That was a perfect contrast between the scenes of kids in class listening to teachers versus the scenes of Ferris and his friends going to experience culture and seeing how the world works. So on like one hand, you have experiencing the world. And then on the other, you have sitting in a classroom, having a teacher droning you. Like I think that the movie made a critique of this system that it lacked creativity, it lacked engagement. That's one thing, one thing I think the film did correctly. And I appreciate that it did that. Thank you, film. 
Oh my god. But I just hated this film. I hated it. I watched it with Ira, and we were both just sitting there horrified. After I finished, I went and looked up critical reactions to this. I'm going to read to you what Richard Roper said. It's quoted on on Wikipedia. I'm going to read to you what he said. Richard Roper called Ferris one of my favorite movies of all time. It has one of the highest repeatability factors of any film I've ever seen. I can watch it again and again. There's also this, and I want to say it in all sincerity, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is something of a suicide prevention film, or at the very least a story about a young man trying to help his friend gain some measure of self-worth. Ferris has made it his mission to show Cameron that the whole world in front of him is passing him by and that life could be pretty sweet if you wake up and embrace it. That's the lasting message of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. If I were in a room with Richard Roper, I would be like, you complete fuck muppet. (laughs) So let's go over this movie. This movie takes the mentally depressed person, Cameron, He's depressed, but it's played as a joke. Ferris constantly gaslights him. His father is abusive. Ferris is constantly emotionally abusive to him. This movie does not take suicide and mental illness seriously. It plays it as a joke at every turn. This is not a suicide prevention film. It makes it seem like it's something you can just snap out of by having a good day. That's not how mental illness works. This is the first time that I actually noticed this about this movie. Okay, because when I was a child, I just, I just didn't, I just didn't realize what was going on with Cameron. And I think that you have a point that, especially with the, with how it ends, because all of a sudden Cameron says, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to face my father. And they never tell us what happened. And I was so, and now for the first time, I was so scared for him because obviously it's not that easy. And by the looks of it, his father is really abusive. And I was so scared for Cameron, but we are never told what happens to him. At the end of the movie, everything turns out fine for Ferris. Meanwhile, back at Cameron's house, he's being beaten to death by his abusive father. It's probably, it's probably that that's just what happens. Now, the way that I watched this, the way that I saw it, I thought that the movie showed fairies as not caring about Cameron. I mean, this guy whose review you just read is full of bullshit. That's not what the movie's about at all. I just think Ferris is a very self-centered, very egotistical teenage boy. I didn't see it as making light of Cameron, quite the contrary. This time when I saw it, I felt very keenly that the movie was like, fuck, this guy's really, he really needs something. He needs his friend. He's not well. He's just not well. No, that's not coming from the movies. I think it was. That's coming from you because you know what mental illness looks like. The movie repeatedly gaslights and undermines Cameron. If the movie was like a person and it was like framing my narrative this way, I'd be like, fuck you, dude. Get me hit by a bus. This movie is super (laughs) abusive. It's super abusive. If the movie was serious about being, don't be suicidal. You would not, you, you, we would get that end scene to know that Cameron was okay. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that. But it doesn't care about Cameron. No, it doesn't. I was, I was waiting to see because I couldn't remember whether they would ever go back to him. I just couldn't remember it. And I kept watching until the very end and they never mentioned Cameron again. He makes a decision. Oh, everything's going to be all right because I'm going to have a conversation with my father. And I was like, dude, your father doesn't sound like a person that you can have a conversation with. And then he goes catatonic. 
And then they play that as a joke where he jokingly tries to commit suicide. So thank you, movie, for making fun of suicidal ideation. I really appreciate that. And Ferris saves him. And then later, you know, like immediately after he comes out, oh, yeah, I was pretending to be catatonic so I could perv on your girlfriend. Super great. Oh, yeah, that was awful. Yeah. And brown people would, of course, steal your car when it, as they worked at, as a valet and go on a joyride. That's exactly what brown people would do. Exactly. And Rooney, the principal, is sympathetic until he starts stalking a student and performing B&Es. That whole scene, Ira actually made a comment. They were like, oh yeah, isn't this super funny? Look at this goofy music underneath the scene as he stalks the student. This is comedy. Ha ha ha. No, that was super gross. Absolutely. And then the sister... She calls 911 to report an intruder, and she's treated as a liar. Nobody believes her. She's victim-blamed. And then while she's in the police station, she makes out with some anonymous drug addict and is immediately more easygoing because all uptight girls need is some dick. That's all I need. (laughs) And it's fine. Oh my god, I feel like I need to apologize (laughs) for making you watch this movie. It's a different time. Watching this movie from 2016, when it was made in, like, the 80s, it's commenting on really specific things. It's commenting on educational drudgery. It's commenting on having to grow up and leave behind things that you're familiar with. It really makes a point that they are all graduating from high school and they don't know what they're going to do and they don't know where they're going to go. They're not going to spend more time together. I mean, it has, like, a good central message. Like, don't let life pass you by because you're trapped in a cycle of whether it's school every day or work every day or whatever else you need to also take the time to have fun and relax and be with people you care about but all the undercurrents sort of undermine that message for me like maybe if i'd watched it a little bit older i might have liked it better but i just feel like because of all the other under like the undercurrents i couldn't i can't i can't i can't i can't (laughs) so oh my god I was so, like, and it's also just not good because it hits all my embarrassment squeaks, all of them. The fake-outs, like, fake phone calls, fooling people. I feel like this was a horrible experience for you, and I feel so bad about it. You don't need to feel bad about it, because it's not, it wasn't a horrible experience. I was just like, what the hell? I mean, it might have been a horrible, horrible experience for Ira, who watched it with me. Also, I just want to point out, the mother, dear mother, Real snoring and recorded snoring sound totally different. <laughs> the parents in this movie were just... A, and also, I really feel like that was on purpose. I really feel like that was on purpose. They were saying something about parenting in this film and authority. And the fact that some authority was too overbearing and some authority was often too self-centered to even know when they were being fooled. The movie was like reaching for that commentary on there's no middle ground sometimes with authority. They either are just total like sort of absent or too overbearing to be de- to be born. I was like, I really wish that you could have done this without making the principal a creepy stalker. He was terrible. Like I really sympathized with him at the beginning when he's trying. Like he's just trying to run a school, and this Ferris Bueller is. <laughs> Oh, that reminds me. I really did like the fact Ferris was, he got sick and everybody got really worried about him. And so yeah. everybody like banded together to like cheer him up and send him flowers and make and make sure he felt better. I really did like that part. But I really wish we could extend that to everybody and not just popular people. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like the thoughtfulness of humanity. Hum- humans can be very yeah. thoughtful and kind. And this kind of proves it. I mean, it's fine. Like, I see why people like it. It's just not the movie for me, I think. 
Also, I really liked the girlfriend. She was there and part of the group, but she never really, except for that one part, got objectified or yeah, put in like really awkward situations. Yeah, because I kept kind of expecting something bad to happen to her because I couldn't remember. No, but nothing does. No, she's awesome. Really, I really, I've always liked her too. And she was kind to Cameron most. Very, very much so. So it was just Ferris who was a dick. Smug, entitled, emotionally abusive. I could go on and on. Ah, my childhood sweetheart. I'm really glad that you grew up and didn't marry a fellow Ferris Bueller. Because at one point, Cameron's like, he's going to be a fry cook on Venus. And I'm like, well, the fry cook part is accurate. (laughs) my god. I'm sorry that I'm giving this zero space piece. Zero space piece? I'm giving this zero space piece. (laughs) Oh my god. This is a first, isn't it? No. I'm, I'm sure I must have given, like, minus space beast of things. I don't know. Although I can see the merits of this film, I don't think it holds up. And that's why, and those are the reasons why I don't think it holds up today. Because we just understand so much about ourselves and culture. And how yeah. culture and living in the world work. As a piece of nostalgia, it, if you read it from a non-2016 perspective, sure, it holds up. But if you, like, come at it from, like, I live in the future... It's kind of hard to get past some of the goofy comedy stuff that we thought was funny back in the eighties. Sorry, John Hughes. <laughs> Anna, would you still give this would you still give this like five space piece? No, absolutely I wouldn't because Don't feel I... don't, don't feel peer pressured by me and my well, inability like, to well, enjoy things. How, how would I not? You don't you, you don't not feel... not because I'm being peer pressured, but because I respect your opinion and I appreciate your take in the movie. And I have to listen, don't I? I did talk about the good things that I liked. Does that count? Yeah, that does count. I don't know how I would rate it now. It's kind of hard, right? We had this discussion when we discussed Ghostbusters too, where I was like, I know I can see all the ways it fails, but I also think it does all these good things right. And also my nostalgia for it is so high that I can't really have an objective opinion about it and i really think those things exist that experiences you have with certain media at certain ages become such an integral part of you that you can see the problems but you can't let those feelings that you had when you watched it go because they're such an important part of your development as a person and i totally get that and i see exactly especially with the music music often makes scenes work yeah and you and you know how much i'm not into music yeah so if the music part is what got you then i totally see why it stands up for you to this day Duncan shen is the only german that i can speak <laughs> so i don't know three space bees is that good compromise you don't have to compromise you can give it whatever you want that's the whole point i'll give it three space bees are you sure you don't want to give it four i'm sure i don't want to give it four i mean i was so worried about Cameron in the end i was so worried because they just played it down the movie made it very, very clear to us that he was depressed, that his father was abusive, and then at the end it was magically solved by a conversation. Not after with the father. <laughs> but after he destroyed his car. I mean, I can't imagine. I wonder if there's fanfic of this that deals with the aftermath of this movie. I bet there is. I'm going to go find it. I bet there is. I wonder what our Space Bee friends slash listeners think about this movie. I don't know. I'm kind of curious to see. I think everybody should watch it right now. (laughs) If you have... If you have Amazon, you can watch it. It's on. If you have Amazon Prime, you can go watch it's it. It's on Netflix too. Is it? It wasn't on my Netflix. Oh, it's here in the UK. It is. If you live in the US, it might be available. It might not. But no, I really am curious if other people have seen this recently. What they think? If they think it holds up? 
uh, if they have the same nostalgia points for it or if they are more like me. Are you a Renee or are you an Anna when it comes to Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Thank you, Happy Hour, the podcast that comes to destroy your childhood memories. Now that we have come to the terrible end of the podcast after I broke Anna's heart, it's time for some recommendations. Anna, what do you have for us this week? Since clearly I am all wrong in this episode, I think I might as well just follow on that same path that I'm on and recommend Game of Thrones. What? (laughs) I swear I'm not an alien. I have not been replaced. But the past three days, I watched seasons five and six of Game of Thrones, and I couldn't stop watching them. It's a really difficult show to watch for many reasons. It has a lot of problematic shit. But season six is brilliant. It has deviated from the books because there is no book six yet. So I guess the freedom of deviating from the original work has done the show and the writers a ton of good. So it took only six seasons, but all the horrible dudes have died and only the women are left and they are amazing. I can never, ever tell anyone, stick with it. It's only six seasons because that's patently ridiculous. But if you, like me, quit on season four because you heard of a certain thing that happened on season five, I would say maybe. Maybe you can go back because things do pick up and revenge happens. And from the best characters, I mean, Renee, it's just so complicated because there are so many graphic violence. There is a lot of sexual violence and there's a lot of violence in general. But the characters, like we said before in our first segment... The characters, they are just so good. They are so... I love them all, even when I hate them. They are so well done. The acting is superb. And in season six, all of my favorite characters are there, standing and being awesome. And there was time travel in season six. Wait, How what? could I not? What? What? I know. what? I know. Okay. All right, Game of Thrones, whatever you say. But I really, really do love the show despite all its flaws, and there are so many flaws, and it's so difficult to watch in many ways. But season six was amazing, was amazing. What is your recommendation? I wish I had a problematic wreck to follow up with, but alas, I do not. I have fluff. I'm bringing you fluff in my wreck. I try not to wreck works in progress because they sometimes never get finished because that's the way fandom works. You can enjoy a story in the pieces you get, and sometimes you don't get all the pieces. Some people hate the lack of closure, but in this specific case, it's fine because I know the story is done. I have seen it with my own eyes, the very end. So you can follow it without qualms. It's titled Triskelion Crescent, and it's by 70 Miles to Babylon, and it's about Steve Rogers, who owns a flower shop, and what happens when some developers move in and the community struggles with change. It's also about what happens when the developer is Tony Stark. If you guessed makeouts, 
Uh, you would be right. It's epistolary and is told in like message board postings and emails and texts. And it heavily features the Young Avengers, who are super excellent. And it is like the best alternate universe pick that I have read all year. If you like any of the things I mentioned, you may love it too. 70 Miles to Babylon is like my favorite Marvel author right now. Everything they touch turns to floaty, dreamy hearts. And I just love their brain, and I hope they write fic forever. And this story, once again, is called Triskelion Crescent by 70 Miles to Babylon. And it's epistolary. Yeah. If you like epistolary fiction, you might like this. I love epistolary fiction, as I you know. You might, I think you might. And it's got Young Avengers in it. Was that, was that on purpose? Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe it was, Anna. Maybe 70 Miles to Babylon is like, I'm going to get Anna into fanfic. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what went through their heads. <laughs> Anna, we have reached the end of another episode. Thank you so much for being patient with me. Well, thank you so much for not killing me this no, episode. No, I would never. You're not wrong. You're allowed to have your own opinions. Our music this week is by Boxcat Games, and our instrumentals are by Chuki Music. Our art is, as always, by the Fabulous Era, and you can commission them at justera.dumbo.com or ping them on Twitter at It's Just Era. If you like the show and think we're awesome, because we obviously are, we always appreciate Signal Boost on social media via Twitter or our Tumblr. And if you want more of us between episodes, you can find us on Twitter at Fangirl Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Renee. And I'm at Booksmugglers. And as always, Space Bees, thank you so much for listening. And see you next episode. Bye!